Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and we're here on a Friday with another round of our Revelation questions. I'm joined by Terry Fakes. This week was uh, a really good lesson. We've jumped into chapters six and seven, and I feel like uh, I know when I taught, I talked about chapters four and five and the throne room vision being kind of a foundational vision. But in chapter six and seven, when the, the Lamb of God, Christ, starts undoing the seals, that seems like when the action starts. And so I feel like that's when people think, OK, we're in Revelation because we got all kinds of cataclysmic stuff happening here. So it was an exciting lesson. It was a great week. I would say this is definitely the marquee vision or the marquee event of Revelation is the beginning of the seals opening the judgment coming down. You know, you talk to people about Revelation or whenever anybody brings up Revelation, that's the first thing they always say is the judgment and chaos and all that. The it's four funny. horsemen. Or, yeah, four yeah. horsemen are the big iconic entree into the judgment. It's funny, though, there's not that much of Revelation that's judgment. If you If you were to break down the percentage of verses... Because you have four right. opening chapters of praise, you have a few scattered praise chapters in the middle and visions of other things, and then you have two and a half chapters at the end of the new heavens and the new earth and the banquet uh, right after mm -hmm. the fall of Babylon. But for some reason, the judgment scenes are the most impactful, I think. They're the ones that stick with you, and right. certainly the seals and the bowls and the trumpets have garnered most of the mind share and attention when you think of Revelation. That's really true. We This time we got into seeing how the four views begin to diverge, not diverge in, um, you know, ultimate core meaning, but diverge in interpreting because with the seals comes the, you know, starting the cataclysms on the earth and the preterists, you know, we're going to see that is the rebellion of the Jews against Rome before 70 AD. And the futurists are going to see that as kicking off that seven years of tribulation in the future. And so you begin in this part of the book, you begin to see how the different ways of looking at the book start to diverge from one another. And I think mm -hmm. that's interesting, too, to understand how people have grappled with making sense of when will these things happen. Right. Well, we've got a couple of good questions for this section as we've been getting each week more questions and really great questions. In chapter six, the opening part of the chapter is something that you covered a little bit in the lesson, but uh, we want to revisit this with a question. When the lamb opens the seals, you're kind of going back to chapter five where they're saying, you know, who, who's worthy to open the scroll? And then all of a sudden, the seals are being broken, being opened. You've talked about what those seals actually are, kind of like an old-timey way of pressing down into wax on a document or a letter. So you've got this right. scroll that's rolled up and sealed, and it is being unrolled is what the seals opening is doing, which leads you to one of our good questions for this week. What is the scroll? Do we know what this is? Is it pre-existent? Is it important? Have we seen it before? Or is should we know what this is referring to? What's written on it? You know, uh, what what do you make of this actual scroll? That's a great question. I'll add a little bit to what I put in the uh, lesson. 
I mentioned in the lesson two ideas. One is that this some people, commentators, think this scroll is the deed to the universe. And so it, despite the fact that Satan is the ruler of the present world, as Jesus said, that it's really God's world. And God holds the deed. And as you open it, this is God's claim to the universe, and he's reclaiming his people, and his universe. A second idea is that this is God's scroll of judgment. All the way back in Romans 1, where it talks about for the wrath of God is being revealed. It's almost like when you get a guilty sentence, then the judge opens up a paper and says, here, you know, you're guilty, and here's your punishment. You're going to jail for five years, or whatever it may be. Some think that it's a judgment. And you can see why, because as you break each seal, you get judgments happening on the earth. One idea I didn't mention is some commentators notice that the fact that there are seven seals and they want to draw a comparison to, in Roman times, many commentators claim that wills in Roman times required five witness or seven witnesses, excuse me, and that would be seven people would seal a will. And so this in some sense is a will, a last will and testament. One other idea that I didn't mention, I'd be open to your thought, is some commentators want to connect this to the scroll in uh, Daniel. They want to connect it to, some, to Old Testament ideas of the scroll, and I didn't dive into that. But do you uh, put any credence, or is that a persuasive argument to you? I do like the Daniel interpretation or the Daniel connection with this, because if you go to the very end of Daniel— in chapter uh, 12, <clears throat> he's getting this final wrap-up vision. And uh, in verse 4, it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. This is the book that he's been writing of the visions that uh, he's getting. So Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And uh, so anyway, he's standing on the stream and he asks how long it will be. And he doesn't get a very clear answer. But then at the end, you get uh, from that time from the regular burnt offering is taken away. And the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1290 days. Blessed is the one who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. Uh, but you go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. That it just seems like that's pointing to a future event that will be taken back up. Right. And the similarities between some of the numbers, the time periods, and, uh, of course, having this sealed book waiting. Now, there's a discrepancy in between, you know, this is a scroll, that's a book. We could look at the original terms and see, could this be referring to the same thing? But there's enough similarity right. there that makes me think that there's a correlation between the two. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And uh, we obviously can't cover everything in the class, but the two major ones are the ones that I talked about. So I guess really the answer to the question is there are, there are a number of good ideas as to what the scroll might be, but there's no common agreement on exactly what the scroll is. Right. Well, and everybody's agreed on what the result of the scroll is because that's spelled out. But it exactly. is an interesting question. Uh, what is what is? The yes, scroll? it is. Our second question is also kind of a step back and, and think about this kind of question. Can Christians today have the gift of prophecy like John? 
This is an interesting question to me, and I want to split it in two pieces. I'm going to give you my opinion on this, and you may disagree, but for for your consideration, I want to separate the book of Revelation, in other words, what happens here with John, from what we think of as the gift of prophecy. And, and here's what I mean by that, is you could argue whether or not John had the gift of prophecy, but really this doesn't have anything to do with John and John's gifting. It is the angel, Jesus, through his angel, coming to John saying, I'm going to show you a vision. I'm going to reveal it. And all I need you to do is write this down. So could that happen? Yeah. Look in the Old Testament. God picks these people that we call prophets. They didn't know they were prophets until God said you're a prophet. And he brings to them these visions. So it isn't a power that resided in John. It is something that God revealed to him. So in that sense, of course, it could happen today in the sense that God is able to do it if it served God's purposes. But we have not seen that. And it seems to me, my opinion is that the New Testament is complete. God has revealed what he's going to reveal. So, for example... 600 years after uh, the the New Testament, say 500 years after Revelation, Muhammad says, oh, I've got another revelation from God like John had, and that becomes the Quran. And, you know, 1800 years later, Joseph Smith says, oh, God gave me a revelation, a new, new information to you. And I'll simply say this, that if indeed God chose to do it, which of course he could, if he wished, I would expect that to be consistent with what's in the Bible, and nothing I've seen since has been. I also don't know that we are lacking anything at this point. It seems to me the book of Revelation brings all the threads together. So in that sense of God is revealing it to him, I think the idea of a gift of prophecy, because this is a good question, prophecy is listed as one of the gifts in the New Testament. I think there we're talking about something different. And Cole, I appreciate your point of view. I tend to think of that as what the Old Testament prophets largely did. They Largely, their job was not, God showed me a vision and I'm going to tell you about it. They did more what you and I might think of as preaching as taking the word of God and just going from town to town to town and spreading the word of God, maybe uh, like we would see an evangelist or we would see a preacher. And so that gifting, I do believe God gifts certain people with with that, along with hospitality and encouragement and et cetera. So that may be a little long-winded, but I'd like to separate those two things just a little bit. What do you Think about that, Cole. What yeah, would your I comments wouldn't add, be? I wouldn't add anything to that in terms of revelation. I think that's a wise way to split the issue. I don't I don't view revelation as the gift of prophecy either. And I'm not saying that this question wouldn't necessarily make that distinction, but I think it's helpful to think about this. What John is doing in seeing this vision or these series of visions and writing them down falls under the prophetic literature category, but I would right. not like you mentioned, I would not consider that the way we interpret the gift of prophecy today. I do believe that the gift of prophecy is operative. I do believe it's subject to scripture. Um, in fact, I have a whole series, I think of seven or eight uh, posts on this called In Spirit and in Truth on So We Speak, and I will I will link to that in the show notes. Um, and you can explore the different views on cessationists, continuationists on prophecy and tongues and why do people believe that the gifts have stopped and not 
I, theologically, I'm a continuationist, a, a charismatic, but I do believe that mm-hmm. prophecy is bounded by what the Bible says prophecy should be, which sometimes right. is not the case. And so I mm-hmm. don't think in the sense that John was writing or Isaiah was writing, we're going to have something on par with the Bible. But I certainly believe that the prophetic gift is still active and still important, kind of in the way that we talked about last time, the going, you know, dying and coming back and telling your story. I'm always a little bit skeptical about those things. Uh, But do I think that people can have visions like that? Sure. I think and I think we should listen to them. But I also think we should check them with Scripture and we should know that we have the Scriptures are sufficient and the canon is complete. Uh, But. Are there things that God can speak by spirit to people? Of course there are. So uh, mm-hmm. that's a difficult thing to parse out in practice sometimes, but I think the Bible makes is pretty clear about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Question number three is going to harken back to a conversation we've had and, and tease it out a little bit. Uh, and, I, and I love this because I could tell the person that wrote this question had listened to our episode on Second Thessalonians where we talked about soul sleep. And uh, this is this is a really interesting question. In Revelation 6, 9, it mentions the souls under the altar. And I'll go ahead and just read this. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the question is, doesn't this, along with the thief on the cross, imply that we go straight to heaven when we die rather than soul sleep? So what do you think about that one? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. In fact, we had a number of questions around this, and I'll, I'll admit to you, I, I didn't realize that I was going to step Uh, into that in this lesson, but it's really a good observation on people's part. So when we had spoken about this before, we talked about two uh, mainstream Christian views. And one is that when you die, you go directly to heaven, your your soul arrives in heaven. And a second view is that no, you go to sleep, so to speak. I mean, literally like going to sleep. You don't know any time is passing. And next thing you know, it's the second coming of Christ. And and there's Jesus. The next thing you know, when you open your eyes. So those are two points of view and there are pros and cons to each. And so this questioner and the other questioners make a really good point for the, you go straight to heaven. And they point out the scriptures that that would support that idea. One being uh, the thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. We talked about that in the episode on Thessalonians. And then this is that, well, wait a minute. If they're if they've died, they're clearly there under the altar and speaking. Uh, God is speaking to them. So it appears that they have already been raised, if you will, to put it that way. So you've really chosen a couple of good examples that people that believe that you go directly to heaven have chosen. So I want to simply say, and I'm not arguing, I just want to say those verses are supportive. I'll just give you one that's not. And so if you were in the camp of soul sleep, you might go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is often thought, for those that think there's a rapture, this is the passage they go to. But it says, don't worry about Christians who have died, because when Christ comes, 
in the clouds, then the dead in Christ will rise first, which has carries a very specific implication that they have not already risen. So I'm not trying to rebut it. I'm simply saying that when you look at the scriptures, you're going to find some scriptures that support each one of those ideas. So then the next question you're probably thinking of is, okay, if that is the case, then what does that mean? How do we resolve that? It's been my experience that when, I mean, one obvious answer is the scripture is inconsistent and it's not true. Well, I'm going to reject that out of hand because uh, Paul himself is one of the people that they argue about. He's the one that wrote and said the dead in Christ will rise, but he's also the one who said in Philippians, I'd like to die and be with Christ. So I don't think the scripture is inconsistent because Paul would have to be pretty crazy, you know, to have written something so obviously contradictory himself. So what's the other answer? The other answer, and I think we see this several times in scripture, is there are things about the afterlife, there are things about eternity that I don't think we can fully comprehend. And here's what I mean. We are creatures who exist in three dimensions, you know, height, width, depth, and one other linear time. And we understand everything in that. We are bound by that thinking. God, however, and the spiritual realm is not bound by linear time and three dimensions. And so I think that explaining concepts that don't necessarily fit very well into our way of thinking. Maybe the best example I could think of, uh, and this is a little trite, but if you were trying to answer a really serious question for a four-year-old, you might say some contradictory things to them, but you'd say, you know what, honestly, it's not contradictory, but you're going to have to grow up some before I can actually explain this to you. So that's, uh, Cole, my personal opinion on how do you resolve it when you have verses that suggest one thing and verses that suggest another, especially when it involves eternity. Would you think of a better way to describe that? No, that's a good example. I, I think that this is a troubling passage for the soul sleep view. But I also think sometimes we can slip into advocating for a view that just isn't actually based anywhere in Scripture. And that is maybe the most common view, which is you die and you immediately go to heaven. And by heaven, people mean your final destination place. That is not a that is not a scriptural view because of the general resurrection of the dead. So we we have to reject that our eternal state will be we die, our souls go on, and they are in heaven forever with God. That's even if you believe in there being some kind of intermediate state where your soul right. is and you are alert and you are perceptive. Mm-hmm. At some point, the soul and the body are going to reunite in eternity because there's a physical resurrection of the dead. So on the one hand, I don't know hardly anyone that believes that the moment you die, you are raised physically and go to heaven in that sense. Uh, but at the same time, if if we're saying your soul goes to heaven and that's where you'll be forever, that also isn't really a biblical position because the end state of every person 
is physical resurrection. And then you will be judged at the physical resurrection, either to be with Christ forever, to be in the new heavens and the new earth, or to be in hell away from God. So we have to be a little bit careful about what are the alternatives to this? And that's where the soul sleep becomes an interesting uh, prospect. When you die, maybe you, you zip right to the end and everybody wakes up from death, quote unquote, at the resurrection. Now, right. what's interesting about this passage as a, as a counterexample to that would be that this is a very specific group of people. This is souls who have been slain for the right. word of God. These are martyrs who have been killed for the word of God, not just Christians who have died. And they are crying out with a loud voice. And we see them under the throne later, which is just one of the really weird yeah. uh, passages to figure out what, what's really going on here. But I, but I do want to point out something that maybe is a little bit of a nod toward the soul sleep view. They were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number right. of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. So it's almost like they woke up from soul sleep a little early to get a prayer request in. <laughs> They're longing for God's yeah. justice. And then they go back to sleep because it's not quite time yet. You could you could certainly read it that way. The thief right. on the cross we discussed in the in the episode. The thief on the cross doesn't trouble me as much as this passage for the soul sleep view because today you'll be with me in paradise. If the soul sleep view is true, as far as you experience it, you close your eyes on earth, you wake up at the judgment with Christ forever, new heavens, new earth, bodily resurrection. That's what the soul sleep view holds. So Jesus could be 100% right in saying that, and both of those views be true. Paradise, probably right. the stronger argument for the people against the soul sleep view is paradise does typically refer to that intermediate soul state that you would be with God in heaven, mm -hmm. but not raised from the dead yet. And uh, so m many people believe that. Of course, the, big, the, the only issue with that is when you get into the book of Revelation, it's hard to square how people are in heaven with God if they haven't been judged yet. And the judgment doesn't right. come until the end. So it, it, there's difficulties all around. That's why there are multiple views on this. And so you have to just take stock of what you think uh, the best evidence is. And like you said, know that our, our understanding here is limited. The problem is not with God's word. The problem is with us. We've not experienced it yet. We don't know the full picture yet. But there are some pretty good arguments for both sides. Yeah, and what you make a good point too is you, you not trying to complicate this to acknowledge the clear teaching in First Corinthians fifteen about a bodily resurrection, the idea that we will have a a as as Paul calls it, uh, not a corruptible body like this, but a, a pure body, you know, a body that's incorruptible in heaven. And then you also have to deal with Revelation 20, where you see the general resurrection of the dead. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not, again, trying to rebut this point. I'm simply saying it does get pretty complicated. It's not as simple as I found a verse and that's what this must be. Uh, it, we have to encompass all of these truths together. And I do think that there's room for slight differences of opinion, but uh, it's it's a complicated subject. It's worth thinking through, and I wouldn't want someone, pastorally speaking, I wouldn't want some to be someone to be concerned about this in in any way, because whichever way you look at this, the assurance 
uh, of being with Christ forever is there. It's not like if a loved one passes away and won't see Christ until the resurrection, first of all, that's no time to them. And secondly, there's no suffering or difficulty or any their trials are over. So from a pastoral perspective, I know it's very appealing to think that in my linear time, my loved one is already in heaven. But I don't know that it actually makes any difference, that there's any negative uh, to either one of these views. Now, I, the last thing I'll say on this, because we could we could go into this forever. It's an interesting topic and difficult to square. But some of it is going to be some of it's going to be dependent on your view of revelation. If you do believe in a rapture, right. especially a pre-trib rapture, right. then you have to have some holding place for believers, some kind of heaven right. uh, for believers before the end. And of course a passage that people will point to for that is in chapter 19 when Christ mm -hmm. with the saints wages war, uh, where did the saints come right. from? Uh, those could be saints on right. the earth. Those could be heavenly saints. It's again, you get down into the details of what your view is, but I would say if you're, if you're a pre-trib rapture person, you probably have no problem with, rejecting the soul sleep view because there's going to be a place that the church goes to to wait while a lot of these things take right. place. And so right. that would be probably the same place that people who have died in Christ are waiting as well. So some of it's going to come down to that as well. Yeah, well, and my last comment would be simply this, because I don't want people to be too troubled by this, is I'll just make this observation. The scripture does not consider this an important enough topic for our Christian lives to spell everything out. And there are many things like that. I wish the scripture, I have questions like, God, could you tell us more about heaven? I think the scriptures have told us what we need to know to live our Christian lives and to encourage us. And like John said at the end of the gospel of John, he said, I suppose if I wrote down everything Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough paper in the world for all the books. So I would just say, apparently, while this may be important to us, God didn't choose to tell us more about this than this. And I would rest comfortably in that. Last question for this week is from the middle of chapter seven. <clears throat> we get the list of the 12,000 from 12 tribes. And the question that we've got is, what is the significance of 12,000 people from each of these 12 tribes? And I think some of the implication questions of that would be, why is it listing these people? Why are there 144,000? And then secondly, how would these people know if the, if these are in fact Jews, how would they know what tribe they're from? They seem like they lost track of this long ago. How would they know what, what tribe they're from and exactly 12,000 of them? Great question. We did talk about, and I'm going to just really flatten this out and talk about two big ways to look at it. And of course, there are probably a hundred slightly different ways to look at this. But one view would say the fact that this is a thousand times 12 squared and it encompasses the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning God's people, that those numbers symbolically, this 12,000 from each tribe and 12 tribe really comes across as the idea of all of God's people through all time. And so the sense then would be God is sealing all of his faithful people through 
all time. Uh, and then there's some offshoots from that. It doesn't really have anything to do with the Jews per se. The second point of view is from futurists who have a dispensational flavor of that, so that there's a pre-tribulation rapture, so now the church is gone. And so here are these 144,000, and that view says that God's not finished with the Jews. And so there are going to be 12,000 Jews from each tribe who accept Christ. They become Christian. And then during this seven years of tribulation, this is pretty much a futurist view, are going to be evangelists to go spread the word of God during that time. So this question really homes in on that second view and says, wait a minute, if these are really going to be Jewish people, 12,000 from each tribe, in a very literal sense, in this seven year of tribulation, how would you even know who's from what tribe? Well, that's one of the arguments against understanding it that way, because from our perspective, you can't really, we cannot tell now because of intermarriage and so forth, at least 10 of those tribes have disappeared from the earth for 2,700 years. It's very difficult. And then, of course, just the mixing. Words and ask that question and say, you know, maybe that's not the way you understand this. But on the flip side, if I held that view, here's what I would say. I would say God is certainly capable of knowing that, and God is certainly capable of figuring that out, which I also think that's a true statement. I think it's a little unlikely to interpret it that way, but it's a very popular way to interpret this. So the answer would be, it would be hard for us to know how you would find the tribes of the Jewish people at that time. But if I help, if you hold that view, you would say, this is not a secret from God. And so God could certainly find 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, so that's, that's, I'm kind of flattening it out. That's not a very nuanced view, but those are probably the two big views. And the questioner is asking one of the questions that would lead you to think maybe this isn't referring to literally Jewish people. Right. Any thoughts on that? No, I wouldn't add anything to that. I think it's it's a very interesting part, especially paired with verse 9. After this, behold, a great multitude that no one could number. After we've now numbered uh, 12 yeah. groups of 12,000 very precisely, now we have another group or that group in its fullness that no one can number. It's kind of an interesting <laughs> right. little deal that we have two groups here. One, there's a lot of those questions that are difficult to answer, but that's why we have this podcast. So thanks to everybody for sending in the questions. <laughs> And uh, we always appreciate some of these. We'll send back an answer immediately, but a lot of these we save up and and uh, we'll ask them on this podcast. So uh, until next Friday, uh, we will catch you again after lesson number six, chapters eight through 10. And uh, we've already got some good questions for that one. So I'll be looking forward to uh, talking next week and uh, getting some answers to this next section of, of Revelation. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.